Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation between two hacks, one British, my name is John Sweeney, and one American, his name is Michael Weiss. And the subject of our conversation is essentially whose country is more fucked, the United States or Britain. And today we're being joined by a special guest, Tom Nichols, who's Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College. So, um, Mike, very briefly, who's doing um, worse at the moment, the States or Britain? I still think it's got to be the States. You know, you've got the sympathy card with your leader having just emerged from hospital. And there's a sort of gauzy warmth in the air for Bojo at the moment, which is understandable. But my country, I mean, I just fled from, from the great state of Michigan, where they're now packing heat at these anti-lockdown protests. I mean, assault rifles. Uh, so we're, we're heading into full-on militia mode right now. Um, so, you know, I, I still, I, I got to say, uh, we're winning the contest, John. America's... Uh, I, um, so I disagree because what's happened is, is uh, the Boris sympathy thing, that's old news. He's getting better. He's uh, relaxing in... Um, well, he's getting better. I hope he gets better. However, there is... Um, there was a story by the Sunday Times at the weekend which said that Boris skipped five Cobra meetings about the virus on the run. And this meant that essentially the man at the top wasn't wasn't in command, wasn't interested. And there's been a lot of anger about that. Now, the government's pushed back and said, hey, that's not fair. We often have Cobra meetings with the prime minister. But it feels like it's a, um, there was a lack of priority about the virus. So, yeah, but um, we, got, we got that too. I mean, American information intelligence being passed from the World Health Organization to the Trump administration and then summarily ignored. Anything you can do, we could do better. <laughs> Donald Trump has absolutely not. I mean, if he's attended any of these fucking meetings, these National Security Council meetings, he's either asleep or he's playing Candy Crush on his phone because he ain't paying attention. <laughs> so, Tom. Yes. Or do I call you Professor? Do I call you Professor? Oh, hell no. Good, correct answer. Um, so, would you rather be British or American right now? Oh, uh, I, you know, that's the flip side of what Michael just said. Yes, um, whose country is more more screwed? Um, mine, and so in some ways, I think I would rather be British. Um, you know, you, you're you guys are kind of downplaying the bojo in ICU thing, but I really think that, and let me just use an old British expression that really put the mockers on a lot of uh, this kind of populist bullshit about, you know, fighting back and not closing down and herd immunity. I mean, it's one thing uh, to talk about all that in the abstract. It's another thing to open up the paper and find out that the guy that you were counting on to support you in that, you know, has a tube down his throat in uh, St. Thomas Hospital. And so I actually think that may have sobered up your country a little bit. And speaking of countries, I also have to remind everybody, I, I don't speak for the Naval War College or for Harvard Extension School or any other organization I'm affiliated with. Good old smashing. So um, how do you think, I mean, let's 10 out of 10 or zero out of 10, how do you think Donald Trump is doing uh, in this crisis? I, I actually reject the premise of your question that you can evaluate Donald Trump because I think he is purely a bystander at this point and his only effect has been to get in the way of people who might know what they're doing and to make their jobs harder. 
Um, and so, you know, the, to say that I would give him a one or a two means that I think that he is actively engaged in this issue in some way. And I think he's not, I suspect that his staff, and I think we see this every day in these briefings, which is one reason I watch them. I think his staff pretty much has him in mushroom mode about, you know, the mushroom principle of feed him, feed him shit and keep him in the dark. Um, because he, he has no idea what he's talking about. It's clear that every time he opens up his briefing book, it's the first time he's seen anything. He is basically being kind of cajoled and wheedled into letting other people do their jobs. His attempt to put um, Jared Kushner, God help us, at the top of this <laughs> thing, um, you know, c- completely backfired. I actually think, I mean, we can get to this later, but I actually think that the president's poll numbers were affected. I think for a lot of people, Jared was the last straw um, because Trumpism, as my my friend Rick Wilson says, Trumpism doesn't scale. It doesn't have a halo effect to other people. Um, and so what you're really seeing is, you know, the, the states and the emergency management people and others all basically trying to deal with this while kind of gently pushing the president out of the way. And I think that's also one of the reasons that he has decided that he has to go out there every day because it makes him feel important and relevant. So on a scale of zero to 10, I give him a, you know, F or a no report or non-attendance because I, I just don't think he's involved in this. Do you Which think I guess is a zero? I mean, you know, if you're the national leader and we can sit here and say, you don't seem to be involved in this, that's, that's something in itself. And I, I, I don't know if you agree, Tom, but I see these press conferences now as his substitute for doing what he wants to be doing right now, which is going around the country and having these raucous campaign events, you know, to sell right. out stadiums and arenas and, and basically, you know, whipping up his populist base. And he's turning these conferences, which are meant to convey or rather relay relevant information about the virus and the federal response into campaign propaganda seminars, right? Um, it's, pushing back against the fake news and et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of like, um, I think that's right, Mike. And I think the other problem is that there is a, there's almost like a physiological need for him to do this or he'll explode. Like he, he, <laughs> I, 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 refer, I, I did an article recently where I said, it's almost like this is the way he vents the building narcissistic pressure before this big reservoir of grievance just bursts its seams. Um, It's almost like he he physically is relieved to get out there and and just yell at reporters and say crazy stuff. And so, I I mean, I think, yeah. Primal dream therapy is having a press conference. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that he wants, that he thinks that this is helping him, but I also think even, the staff, because it's clearly not helping him now. And I think he doesn't want to hear that from his staff because this is almost like, again, it's like a physical need, you know, that he needs this hit of two hour hit of crack every day in front of the cameras. And, um, you know, and, and I think he, this is, this again convinces me that he really has no actual influence on what's going on other than in a very negative kind of obstructionist way. Well, let me let me ask you that because I think we, we all agree. Uh, well, we, we we all share the same sort of shocked, horrified, and kind of befuddled view of this man. But why is it that you know, in, in every kind of matchup I've seen, the polling suggests that in a contest between him and 
sleepy Joe Biden, he's still pulling 42 percent against Biden's 49. How is this guy above? How is he cracked 30 percent uh, in, a, in a general election projection? I, d- I don't understand. Can you explain I, this? I, I had always thought that his base, um, his floor in polling would be somewhere near where Nixon's was when he left. I figured that, mm-hmm. you know, by the time Trump was ushered out of office one way or another, that there'd still be about a 20, I, I gave it about a 28 or 30% floor. Um, that floor is 42%. And if you talk to some of those folks or in real life, I don't mean, you know, the Twitter or Facebook brigades. I mean, talk to someone. Um, I've had fascinating conversations with both Trumper people, you know, Trumper Trump supporters in real life, as well as people I know who have Trumper relatives, um, what they're doing is going into complete mental, uh, to, to use the phrase of the day, they're going into mental lockdown. They're simply mm-hmm. saying things like, it's not true. It's not right. true. It's not happening. It's not true. Um, Joe Walsh, who, who challenged Trump for a while in the primaries, um, went, and it was really scary. I mean, he, he talked about this. He went out to um, you know places like Indiana, and he said, "Look, we're all conservatives here, uh, so you know how, how do we feel about the fact that the the deficit is a trillion dollar? We have a trillion dollar deficit." And he hmm. said, "These Republican voters looked at, at square in the eye and said, no, we don't.'" And right. and he said, "Yes, we do. This isn't this isn't an opinion. I mean, this isn't like an argument. This the the deficit has hit a trillion dollars." And he said, "These people looked at him, you know, point blank and said." No, it isn't. So right. I think that's how you explain that 40% is they've just, they've mentally shut down and said, I committed to this guy. The psychological sunk costs are so high now that right. I can never climb down and I'm just staying there. And no matter what I'm at, I mean, the you know, the country could be in flames. Trump could be, you know, fleeing to Moscow f- and and seeking refuge as the country is you know, um, in radioactive, um, debris and you're going to have 40% of the, you know, the people out there and what they like to think of as real America saying, none of that's happening. He's my guy. He tells it like it is. The rest of you are just a bunch of politically correct pussies. Facts become conspiracies. That's the problem. This feels like a cult. It is a cult. Not, 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 it, it feels like a cult. Now, the reason this is an, um, it's a very important question for me uh, personally is that I've put 500 quid on Sleepy Joe Biden to beat Donald Trump um, at the general election. Am I, am I going to lose, Tom? I, you know, this is the problem where political pros- prognostication and confirmation bias and devout wishing all come together. I, I don't think you're going to lose that money unless the Democrats do something insanely stupid, which Michael and I will tell you is always, you can always count on the Democrats to do something insanely stupid. Um, but if they hold to, I mean, I let me say something nice about the Democrats here, because of, as people know, I'm you're, a Democrat. You're, you're a Republican. I think our listeners should know this, that you're, I'm a, you're a former Republican. Yes, I am a... But you're, but you're, if there's a line down the middle, you would have been on the right, or you're on the right of that line for, uh, for, your, for, for just about all of my life. I mean, I, you know, I voted for Reagan. I, Hillary Clinton was the first time I ever voted for a Democrat for president. Um, I am, which is, which is quite a, a, a baptism by fire. I have to oh, say, yeah. oh, 
it did <laughs> it didn't feel good trust me um but you know uh, but i was always one of those squishy liberal new england republicans um that doesn't exist you're anymore you're a rhino yeah yeah you're well, a rhino exactly and i worked for a republican senator um god rest his soul john Hines, who who would really have been attacked these days as a rhino if you were still around. Um, but I, I think you're not going to lose that because the, the president had to pull an inside straight in what I think of as a perfect storm of an election in 2016. And he's trying to do it again. And there was just, just before we started recording today, uh, there was a poll showing um, Trump not only behind, but behind in all of the swing states. And I think this is the mm-hmm. thing that you know people just don't can't seem to internalize that national polls don't mean anything right because national polls take all of California and you know 38 million people in California and 38 or 40 million people in four or five southern states you know and and aggregate those that that's not how we elect the president and it doesn't matter right now Trump is trailing in the five or six states that he absolutely needs. He's even trailing in Florida. And so I I, I think, you know, that, that Trump has a very narrow and possible path to 270 electoral votes. Biden has several very plausible paths to 270 electoral votes. So, you know, up until... Biden is, this is not my first choice for a Democratic nominee. I don't know if it's anyone's first choice, to be honest. And this might be the first case in which, you know, a protest vote decides a presidential election, right? I mean, let, let's prop this guy up. He's fine. You know, he's he's centrist. He's not crazy. He's not radical. He doesn't want to, you know, institute a revolution in the midst of a plague and all the rest of it. Fine, fine, fine. Just put him in the White House, get rid of this guy, and then we'll deal with all the fallout of his cognitive deterioration and his sort of gaff prone nature uh, as it as it occurs. But anything is better than Trump. Anything better than Trump. Right. I think you're being too hard on the Democrats here, Michael. This is what I was going to say about saying something nice about Democrats. Uh, Um, You know, first of all, Joe Biden's never been a good candidate for president. I mean, this notion that he's for four years. Yeah. This notion that he's suffering cognitive decline. He's an old guy. He's definitely missing a step. Um, compared to Donald Trump, he is, you know, sharp as a as a knife and clear as a crystal. Um, but you know, he was always gaff prone. He he was always kind of goofy Uncle Joe. I, I'm okay with that. And I think what's really what speaks well of the Democrats is that when they looked around, they said, "Look, we are going to think like strategists for a change instead of doing the thing that makes us feel good mm. and nominate the gay married guy or the the black prosecutor from California whose votes are already in the bag uh, or God help us, you know, the, the, the irascible uh, kooky old socialist from Vermont who had no chance of winning, you know, they coalesced very quickly and said for once, what we want as Democrats is to win this election. And I thought that spoke well of them that, you know, forget about the Twitter environment or the Facebook environment or Rose Twitter or the Bernie bros. They don't vote. The fact that Matt, you know, these Bernie bros saying, Oh, we're not going to vote in November. Well, screw you. You didn't vote this time either. Right. Um, you didn't even <laughs> vote for Bernie, you dumbasses. So, you know, what difference does it make? The adults in the democratic party coalesced and said, 
Job number one is to find somebody who can accumulate 270 electoral votes. And I think, Michael, to your point, it's not that we'll sort out his cognitive shortcomings or whatever. It's like we'll sort out our policy differences later, which is how Republicans used to do it. That's how Republicans won elections. They would have these bloody primaries, they would get a nominee, and then everybody would say, look, I'm voting for the guy with the R on his name, and we'll fight it out inside the White House or inside the Senate, rather than lose on purity. And I think that's, if the Democrats hold to that notion and to say, look, I'm voting for the guy with the D behind his name to get rid of Donald Trump, then John, you're not going to lose your money. The, uh, by the way, um, one of the things we do here is um, we drink while we record because we're like that. So I'm drinking an Italian red as per normal. Um, Mike, what are you on? One of your weird gems? A Hendrix and soda. I should add, by the way, that um, we decided that happy hour is on John's time because should it be an art time, <laughs> Tom, I think John would probably have had a coronary after episode two of this podcast, which probably no one listens to. So it's just, it's basically a recorded phone call between two whiny bitches that's how i see this video. but anyway <laughs> in true to form i have put myself a very mild hendrix and soda and tom i think you're on you're on uh, diet coke or something right yeah, that's fine i, I yeah. have uh i have a diet coke and a chaser of hand sanitizer here <laughs> there you go okay fair enough well you have a teaching job and i think you're still doing classes remotely right uh where i well we um i am not actually teaching our our department isn't teaching this term at the war college but i'm teaching at harvard extension school and um i actually have a lot of strange enough to say when you're a professor um you know avoid the office don't talk to your colleagues and stay at home is kind of our normal work model right uh, so <laughs> you know i'm i've got a pile of paper and stuff to do on my desk but um I get through the day on Diet Coke and now I'm getting, you know, Diet Coke and the and the high fumes I'm getting off of antibacterial hand sanitizer by Tropical Seas. That's Where the name of the company? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stick to my Italian red. Do um, it's non it says so, it's non-toxic to sea life. I don't know why that's important for a hand sanitizer. <laughs> Well, you're, you're used to well, you're um, a navy chap, so um, that's yeah. good to hear. And I'm a coast marinist too, so I live on the near the beach, so I guess that's good. There you go. Oh, I miss the sea. Um, so um, I miss I miss so many things. Mike says on this um, again and again and again. The point is that Trump may be you know out to lunch intellectually. But when it comes to a fight, when it comes to sort of punching home his nasty, horrible, transactionalist worldview, he's extremely good. He's extremely vicious. He knows how to hurt. He knows how to kill in a way that Joe Biden doesn't. What do you think to that, Tom? Well, he does have, I mean, I think, first of all, the, President Trump is the most palpably stupid human being in American public life in multiple generations. I mean, and I say that honestly, nobody's going to believe that I'm saying that in a nonpartisan way, but I really believe that. More, I'm, more I'm stupid never... than Gerald Ford. More stupid than Ford? Gerald Ford was not a stupid man. I mean, I, I actually plowed through a lot of the um, State Department papers for the arms control era back, you know, when we're still doing 
that kind of academic work. Um, Gerald Ford was not stupid. I mean, he was not a highly educated man, but he he was a guy who could go to you know Vladivostok and have detailed conversations with Leonid Brezhnev about theater range bombers. I mean, he, he was capable of like all good politicians. He was capable of being briefed and he was capable of being educated. Trump is unbriefable and uneducable. He has no receive mode for anything, but he does have a kind of remarkable lizard brain that mm, tells yeah. him kind of how to, uh, the one thing he's very good at is marketing and he's good at it because he knows his audience. He knows, he, he gets that all he has to do is put his name on a stake, uh, you know, or, or a university or a casino and a certain number of rubes are just going to show up and hand him his, hand him their money. And he's good at that. Um, it's his only natural skill set. Um, but I don't think this there there is this notion to John to go back to your question that in order to beat him Biden needs to be that good. I disagree. I think Biden needs to be um, the alternative to that. Instead of I, I hate these these um, Twitter liberals who say I want to see somebody get in there and really punch him up in a debate. Hillary Clinton won all three of her debates with Donald Trump hands down. Not even close. She beat him fair and square. She beat him on points. She beat him on style. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter one bit. This is not what does it. I think Biden does best by simply standing back and saying, I'm a calming, reassuring presence. I'm not perfect. I have a certain sense of humor about myself. I'm, I'm an ordinary guy. I'm from Scranton. I say dopey things now and then. And when I'm elected, you won't wake up every morning going, now what the fuck is happening? So <laughs> the way the way I see it is if, if Biden embodies the way The Onion, the satirical news website, covered him as vice president, he wins. Which is to say, you know, the guy who's got, you know, his his engine running Trans Am parked on the, the driveway and he's he's kicking back po boys and, you know, Obama's bailing him out of prison at four o'clock in the morning. He's he's crazy Uncle Joe. He's he's basically he's white trash. Right. But a fun kind of white trash. If he if he embodies that. Fine. My fear, though, Tom, and this is where Trump's lizard brain and his he, he does have a real genius for tapping into a kind of emotive reactionary impulse in the American electorate. And I saw this when he was just a real estate schmuck in New York and he could play, he could play New Yorkers who, who famously have a, a pretty good bullshit detector. My fear is it's him and Biden on that stage. And, you know, Biden has only gone up against people in his own party. And, and yet, you know, there was, it was, it was a little pugilistic at times. You'd got Warren coming after him, Bernie coming after him, Kamala Harris, even fucking Tulsi Gabbard coming mm -hmm. after him. But it was never good. It was never halfway as nasty as it'll be with Trump. And I can see Trump. I can see Trump pulling the dead kid card. I can see Trump pulling the Burisma stuff. I can see Trump pu pushing I, Biden buttons to a point where Biden really loses his shit. And my concern here is not even that, you know, he's lost a step. He's lost many steps. I've seen these these sort of Biden HQ bunker videos during the time of Corona. And, and it, it, it really worries me. And yeah, if, if, that I, happens, I, if that happens on a national stage, then you're, you're, you're getting into your kind of, there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe 
mode. You're, you're getting into a gaff that can't be lived down. And well, that, that, that's going to, that, that is going to have an impact, even with I, Trump. I think, the, you're, Michael, I think you're worrying. I think you're just worrying too much because, first of all, there's nobody left to convince. It's not like there are going to be people out there saying, well, I was going to vote for Joe Biden. Then he said something dumb during a debate. And now I've got to vote for Donald Trump. The only thing that matters is uh, can a certain number of Republicans be shamed out of voting for Donald Trump? And I think 2018 and the special elections since then have suggested that there are a lot of women in the suburbs who are more than ready to walk away from Donald Trump and aren't going to change their mind about that one way or another. And I think the Democrats not depressing their own turnout by doing dumb stuff. Um, like nominating Hillary Clinton, which, you know, massively depressed their own turnout in places like Wisconsin. Um, so I don't live in fear of this Biden. Get if anything, I hope that Biden's being coached to just nod, you know, politely and to do the Reagan thing where Trump loses his shit and Biden smiles and says, there you go again. Yeah. Because I, I think that Trump, Biden's people so far seem smart to me about the way they've, the ads they're putting out are terrific. The way they kind of just laid low and waited for South Carolina and then completely ambushed the rest of the field. He never got into a public scrap with Bernie, which I think were, served him well um, about this. He never really went after Warren. Well, hey, and I want to pause there because you, you actually see this as a kind of real strategy on their part, as opposed to there being you know, the, the, the beneficiaries of just blind luck and historical chance. Yeah, no, I don't see it that way. Huh. Interesting. I don't see, I don't see it as blind luck. These people have been around too long and there were so many opportunities for him to make a mistake in, in terms of that strategy. I mean, you know, the way he handled losing the three, uh, you know, the super liberal white people primaries, um, you know, before South Carolina, where he went out there and said, yeah, that sucked. Boy, phew, you know, instead of, I think a dumber candidate and a worse campaign would have started running ads against Bernie. They'd have been baited into that. Um, they would have, you know, slammed uh, people like Warren harder, harder. He just, he laid low and, and did the Braveheart thing, right? Of hold, hold, hold until South Carolina. I, that made me feel good about their strategy. And I think with Trump right now, there's, you know, you've got Democrats saying Biden needs to be out there every day. No, he's doing the right thing. Let Trump go out there for two hours every afternoon and shoot himself in the foot for hours. The, every day that Trump's out there, yesterday's press conference, for example, was, was great for this. Every day that he's out there, that's a free Biden ad. And one of Biden's people actually said this on Twitter the other day, said, People are asking us why we're not running more ads. Why would we do that when Trump's out there every day? Yeah. So a question. Uh, Vladimir Putin, um, is he going to sit not on his hands? <laughs> not, uh, not a fan. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Was there another question? I'm, a, I'm not a fan either. I've met, I've met Putin in, um, in 2014. I asked him uh, about MH17. And... Um, after Putin answered the question uh, for his satisfaction, but not mine, I was put in the basement um, where there was coffee and croissant, but we couldn't make a phone call and we couldn't get out. Wow. <laughs> so hey, at, least you, at least he left you some food. Yeah, it was where well, things have improved since Stalin's day, the coffee and the croissant, but the door was locked and there was a big guy on the, uh, on the other side of the door and we couldn't get out. So things are, they've stayed the same. But Putin, will he sit on his hands? Or will he muck about as he did last time? 
he is mucking about. Um, but again, you know, this is an interesting dynamic. Um, I w- was worried that we would have a major foreign policy crisis during Trump's presidency. And I still think that if Trump loses, especially other powers may move against us to see what they can get out of the candy store at the last minute. Um, but I think it's been interesting the way Putin and she and others um, have laid low to because they don't think there's anything they could be doing that is more damaging than what Trump is already doing to us as a country. I mean, if you think about it from Putin's Honestly, point of view. I, that I think is, is exactly right. Um, you know, I see Russian state officials and, and diplomats in inverted commas on Facebook who post American news stories, essentially just joking that we, we, can, sit comment. we can sit this down, you know, it's, Nothing to do, nothing to see here, you know. Mr. Petrushev and and Bortnikov can retire happily now to their dachas. I mean, everything is this. They're Americans are doing what we would do, but so much better than we could ever do it. Just right. leave why, them alone. Why would they? Why would Putin even want to kind of you know pop his head out of his gopher hole at this point, right? Uh, and let us you know remind us that he's there. I mean, yes, his trolls are all over Facebook and Twitter. Um, yes, they're, you know, trying to float stuff. I'm sure that they, you know, that they're helping to magnify the, uh, protest message out there in places like Michigan and Ohio. But really, if I were, you know, if I were running the, you know, Russian intelligence service and boy, there's a thought experiment for you. Um, you know, my, my advice to the, to Putin would be, um, leave, leave it alone. You know, what, we gain nothing from being more visible at this point when Trump is doing everything. Trump is actually going further. I bet if they, I I love the way that people think Trump is, you know, following Russian instructions and he's an agent. I I bet if, if there were really a Russian handler dealing with Trump, his advice would be, Hey, tone it down a little. Yeah. Dude, dude, throttle it back a little bit, you know. <laughs> the, the other, the other element here, I think that's that's quite pleasing to the Kremlin is that this election is really going to be about China as the great right. force, mm-hmm. not right. Russia. You know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. remember the GRU and they're hacking the DNC and John Podesta's emails? Well, that ain't nothing compared to the plague unleashed upon the world by either people munching bats in Wuhan or now, according to U.S. intelligence speculation, possibly something that snuck out of a lab. Um, and, you know, Trump is absolutely going to instrumentalize that. And try. And apparently, according to the latest news reports, the, the strategy from Trump HQ is tie Biden to the Chinese Communist Party for his all his apologetics for Beijing over the years. Uh, and, and then... I was going to say, and that's something that Trump, going back to this lizard brain notion, that's that's where Trump knows his own flock very well, because they have no memory. Um, (laughs) They have no, they just actually expressing penis envy that he couldn't be dictator for life. Right. You know, and, and that, and, you know, months of months of what a great guy she is. And we're getting along with China, but I've been tough on them, but we're friends now. He can turn on a dime tomorrow and say, China attacked us with a biological weapon and we must, you have to keep me in office because no one has ever been tougher on China than Trump. And the, you know, again, his, 
I, I wish I could claim credit for it, but Alexandra Petri was the one who said his his followers are basically just like Trump. They are goldfish. They have no memory. They have no sense of context. They don't remember what happens from one minute to the next. And the same people that were sending around China is our friend memes will turn on a dime and say that we have always been at war with Eurasia. Uh, yeah. And Trump knows that they'll do it. But I don't think, and, I, and let me go back to your point, Michael, about you know, his manipulation of the base. The problem with having that 40% floor is that it's also a ceiling. Mm -hmm. And so he can do this and he will always, my, my fervent plea to the Democrats is to go back to John's point about a cult. Remember that you are dealing with a cult. Their turnout will be a hundred percent of the cult. So you, you don't have any room to screw around here. Don't, none of this, horsing around with, you know, Stacey Abrams and Medicare for all and, uh, you know, transgender town halls, just play. You have a layup right in front of you. Play it mm -hmm. straight, go straight down the court, drop the bet, dropping it. People are going to be amazed and I'm using a sports metaphor, but I can. Um, I've, I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's um, it's like cricket, only with a bigger ball, John. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, but if you were saying that Trump's a silly mid-off, I'd understand. Well, it's just, he's got a clear path. You know, I mean, let's go to horse racing, you know. There's a toilet in the background, and I just want to assure the three listeners that we have, which are the three people on this call, that it's my daughter. And <laughs> I've, I've since given up any attempt to try and interdict the five-year-old sort of intruding. Every day, whatever I do, whether it's work or, or personal life, is that that scene from the BBC? There she is. Where the, yeah, the, <laughs> where, where the Korea expert is has his kid burst in, and that's just the life. So you know, I'm not just let it roll. I, I ain't I ain't well, saying anything about this. It's, it's been a good. good it's while we're on this, years. while we're on this, sorry to interrupt. While we're on this, Mike, tell us what happened to you. Tell us what happened to you. Uh, the other day when you were driving from Michigan to New York City. Well, yeah, I mean, we, I, I, I nearly bought the farm and so did the family. I mean, we were, so, and this is what I like, like my wife has now discovered not only the, the joys of Twitter, but also why her husband was in this sort of fugue state for so many years, engaging with people on Twitter. So we, we got into a terrible car accident and touch wood, everyone in the family walked away from it, not with, without a scratch or a bump or a bruise. Um, and it, what had happened was we were, we, we'd gone to Michigan about three or four weeks ago just to ride out the peak because we live in Queens and we live in the zip code, which is the epicenter of the epicenter of the coronavirus. And I wasn't so much worried about myself or my wife getting it. And, you know, the rates of adolescent contraction of the disease are, are quite low. But I have a 70-year-old mother who lives down the road from me, and I just, you know, she she's a grandma, so she wants to come and, and hang out. And, you know, I just said, Ma, you know, let us get out of here, and you be safe. And if you want to come to Michigan with us, that'd be great. Of course, she didn't. So we, we fucked off to Michigan for three weeks. And it's my in-law's house, and my in-laws are snowbirds, and they're in Florida, but they're planning to come back. So we had to leave, and we had to come back to our home in New York. And so I decided, uh, let's just kind of go through in one day. It's about a nine and a half hour drive and going down was fine. So uh, and then, of course, it was probably one of the worst snowstorms ever seen in mid-April across three fucking states, uh, Ohio, Michigan, Ohio and Pennsylvania. And so in western Pennsylvania, Jefferson County, 
Uh, I was on a three lane highway in the left lane, hit a skid. The car went off road, but of course the shoulder was not a shoulder. It just goes right into a hill. So the car goes up the mountain into the brush and I've like lost control then comes down the mountain and then careens and does a 360 across three lanes of highway interstate and then smashes into the shoulder on the right hand side. Uh, but again, not the airbags didn't even deploy. The one thing that happened though was the, the front passenger wheel of the car broke clean off the axle and wound up spinning into the middle lane of the highway, I think. So again, miraculously, no one was injured. The most terrifying, terrifying experience of my life, my kids in the back seat, my Labrador's in the back seat, my whole family, everything I care about in the world in this one fucking SUV. Uh, the car is totaled, but so what? I mean, my family's fine. So that was our crazy adventure coming home. And then, of course, on Twitter, I, I wanted to not even sort of share with the world this this horrible experience, but to say from the minute this accident took place, I mean, I'm not making this up. The guy behind us on the highway, and thank Christ there was no oncoming traffic when this happened, but the first car that that that, that came up behind us was an off-duty sheriff. So he puts his lights on, he pulls over, he, he handles everything, calls EMS, fire departments, state troopers, you name it. Uh, and every single person we met in this town of Brookville, Pennsylvania, where it took place, was like an angel. They just took care of us. Uh, the fire department is all volunteer. They, they drove us back in the fire truck. And this one firefighter, Sasha, was entertaining Julia for about two hours, gave her toys from their Christmas drive. I mean, it was just such wonder. It was like, it, it really was, you know, it, when people talk about real America and small town America, and it, it, it gets a bit kitsch and, and, and ridiculous. But honestly, if I had to make a movie... I would cast this entire fucking town because they completely took care of my family. And it was such a heartwarming experience too, because, you know, these are the first responders, right? These are the people that are there every day dealing with far worse cases than, than anything we experienced. Uh, and they, they acted like, you know, it's not even their job to do it. It's just their, their calling in life. So it's like Bedford falls. It was like Bedford falls. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, it was actually quite nice because, you know, I did this thread on Twitter just to kind of give a shout out. And then all the people in the town discovered the thread and started, oh, yeah, you know, the guy who towed your, your car, that's my dad, Dusty. And it was it was so sweet. Like there was such a, a sort of outpouring of gratitude that we were like, yes, this town is blessed and all the people in it. And should you ever be driving through western Pennsylvania, please stop it. At, at Brookville and, you know, pay homage to, to all of these wonderful people. But then, of course, no, no, then, of no, course no, in the midst no, of this, in the do you think these people voted for Trump last time? I, you know what? I, no one in the car or now in, in what was left of the car was, was even tempted to go there. That was the last thing on my fucking mind. I mean, there were plenty yes. of signs in the parts of the country we drove through. But I was going to say, the thing that, that really pissed us off, and, and Amy more so than myself, are these fucking jackasses on Twitter being like, what are you doing joyriding with your kid in the middle of a snowstorm? We were going to our house. This was not a joyride. And where the hell should my kid be riding? On the fucking roof of the car? So it's, I'm going to open up Twitter forever. Um, which I guess is good. And I'm very tempted to go off forever as well. But then again, that happens every Tuesday. So but yeah, there's, there's two things. There's two things yeah. in there, Michael. One is, first of all, I haven't seen Julian about three years. So anytime she wants to interrupt you, I'm okay with that because she's so yeah. much cuter than you are. Um, really Thank Christ. But, you take 
her mother. But John's question about, you know, did these people vote for Trump? This is really, this is a a paradox and it's becoming a problem, I think, in the way our politics is evolving. I, I'm, I'm working on a book right now where I, I refer to people that we disagree with now as the nicest people you've ever disliked because the disconnect between how we, how we often live, and I think actually it's going to collapse over time, that how we live our politics is going to influence how we become as neighbors. There's a, um, there was a piece a while back about a, a woman who had a breakdown, a car breakdown um, in the South, and the, the tow truck driver showed up and saw her Bernie sticker and said, uh, I'm not helping you out. And he basically turned around and left. Um, but I, but this, you know, that you can, you're, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, you say hi to your neighbors, you wave to them, but then you find out that your political differences are, are even deeper than the things we would normally argue about, like abortion or immigration or whatever it is. You know, I, I mean, I've had, I've spent a good chunk of my life over, over the years dealing in, I mean, I worked in politics. I've, you know, been very active in politics. I have had good friends with whom we can have anguished and passionate disagreements about everything. Again, from, you know, hot button stuff like abortion to, you know, how many illegal immigrants should we deport? I mean, you know, these are, these are not easy questions, but then you get to, people who say things like, good, I'm glad they put those kids in cages. That's a lesson to everybody else. Or, you know, um, good, I hope, you know, NATO's just a bunch of freeloaders and what do we care about, you know, England anyway? I mean, you find yourself saying, hey, these aren't policy disagreements. These aren't even moral disagreements. You're just, you're just a bad person. These are things that, that reflect on you as just a terrible, you know, like what, so what if he calls women fat pigs? Um, you know, who cares about, you know, baiting, uh, every minority group. So what if he made, I mean, I, I really thought a couple of moments back in 2016 when he, when he made fun of John McCain and then he made fun of that disabled New York times reporter, which of course now his, his followers and his loyalists claim never happened and was misinterpreted, but he clearly did. And, you know, you kind of turn to the person next to you and say, look, I don't agree with you about marginal tax rates. I don't agree with you about, you know, whether Roe v. Wade was good law or whether abortion should be more restricted. I don't agree with you about what we should do with, you know, 11 million undocumented uh, immigrants. But I really thought I knew you better than to be someone who laughs and says, suck it libs. When a guy makes fun of a handicapped guy, there's some basic loss of humanity that is turning politics. You know, I mean, I'm great. I guess my point, Michael is it's great that this town poured its heart to you and took care of you. Um, but I, I just worry that I'm, I'm almost glad that you didn't have to have further conversations with them because by the end of it, you know, they would not have liked you and you would not have liked them. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I, I have a New York driver's license and I had California plates because the car was leased in L.A. when we moved in, when we lived in L.A. So I, I don't think they were, you know, terribly um, in, in the dark about what the politics, uh, you know, of this household is. But, you know, it just it, it, what I'm trying to say is it didn't occur to them to try and, and chivy this stuff out of me. It, was, it wasn't part of the, the job. You know, it wasn't right. part of their, their, their duty. 
Um, and you know, you, you're dealing with a town with, a, with an all volunteer fire department. And this one firefighter, Sasha has been doing it for 17 years. So these people don't get paid and they fish far worse cases than, than ours off the side of the road on a daily fucking basis. And the last thing that these people are asking about is, so who'd you vote for in 2016? You know, this, this is a heartening thing, but I'm going to point out one other thing that I think is different about our politics today and particularly about Trump's, the kind of fervent Trump supporters, because I think it's also important for us to make a distinction between, you know, people who voted for Trump in 2016 and people who are fervently pro-Trump in 2020, because I don't think that, that those are exactly the same group of people. Um, that one of the things that I find striking about Trump folks, uh, outs, even outside of social media, is they look for opportunities to tell you about their politics as quickly as possible. Right. Uh, which is something that I, you know, just that's a new experience for me. Um, and I've always been the political minority in most places I lived. I mean, I was the kid in college who had a Reagan sign at Boston University. And, you know, that was you not, pulled, that was not comfortable. <laughs> Pardon? I said you poor sod. Yeah, you know, but people now, you know, I, I have, I mean, I it even happened to me overseas. I was in a, I was in a casino in London a couple of years ago and, you know, I was chit-chatting and playing some blackjack and a guy heard my American accent and he said, oh, good play. He said, Hey, you're a good gambler. Just like your president, eh? He's a great guy. And I'm like, where, when did it become a normal thing to like turn and just start like feeling out the other guy's politics among strangers at a blackjack table in a foreign country? And that happens more and more often, I think, in this country. And I'm glad it didn't happen to you, Michael. But I think it's something that, you know, is very telling about, I mean, and anti-Trump people do it too. But the Trump voters, yeah. with the hats and the T-shirts and the bumper stickers, it's almost like there's a compulsive need to tell you, yeah. you know, that I Listen, feel. I wanted, I wanted to ask you this because I, I saw this. I, I watched uh, Dan Crenshaw on Bill Maher on Friday. And, you know, th this, this uh, John, if you haven't seen it, Dan Crenshaw is this uh, U.S. representative, uh, war hero. I think he was a, a Navy SEAL, served in Fallujah. And um, a couple of years ago, there was this sort of a very online flap because he was he was mocked as looking like a porn star on Saturday Night Live. And the guy who made the joke, you know, sort of flippantly recounted his war record and moved on. And then it became this whole kind of cause celeb. And he came on the show anyway. Um, very smart, super articulate guy and actually probably one of the best. Uh, exponents or apologists for the Trump administration, the current GOP has. And so this, this, this video, this clip of him on Mar was going viral um, because he was essentially giving sort of a litany of policy decisions when they were taken and how the administration is getting a bad rap because yeah, Donald Trump might be a, a sort of clownish character, but, but actually the decisions that needed to be taken were taken. And oh, by the way, you know, the Democrats were faffing about at the height of the crisis when everyone's now looking back with revisionist history about, you know, why didn't we do X when, when we, we did Y and et cetera. Anyway, then he goes on Twitter and he says, you know, uh, liberals can get away with everything, but we conservatives are held to such a higher 
standard. And then, you know, it's like whatever, whatever flickering sympathy or, or kind of interest I had in Crenshaw right. kind of evaporated at that moment, because I'm thinking, you know, and I want to, this is the, the point of the podcast at the very tail end. So hopefully too many people haven't dropped out, but I want to plug Tom's book, which is called The Death of Expertise, and which I see as a kind of a, 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 a more technocratic sequel to Robert Hughes's Culture of Complaint. And what, what was great about that book, which, as you recall, because I think came out, came out in the early 90s, it was a series of lectures that you know, it was a Marxist art critic for the nation and Time magazine. But he made the point that, look, there is a kind of there is a form of political correctness and self-pity and special pleading that occurs only to the right, the political right, particularly in America. Woe is us. We can't get academics tenured on campuses. We're this beleaguered and besieged minority of a minority. And, it, and you know, it's like, wait, conservatives never get away with what now? You know, in the age of, of Donald Trump, and as Tom was pointing out, facts simply don't exist. Or if they do, they're seen as conspiracies by the deep state to, to take down a president by illegal unconstitutional means. Conservatives I, get away I was, with- I had the same reaction. I had the same reaction you did, Michael, and I thought, you know, Crenshaw's a really smart guy. You respect his service. He he also has a certain self-deprecating sense of humor, which is really right. lacking among conservatives. Yeah. But I thought that at that moment, he was just full of crap. Um, this notion that, you know, oh, you know, leftists get away with anything and conservatives, you know, that felt more like a legitimate complaint somewhere around 1980 right. than it then because now, because of course in 1980, right, the Democrats were the dominant party in America. The, this is a weird complaint from people who until Trump blew everything up, which a lot of us warned them would happen, until 2016, the Republicans controlled all the things. They right. were the dominant party at every level of government, and yet they constantly complained. And I think recently in a conversation on Twitter, Joy Reid got this right. She said, they have all the power, but they cannot bring the dominant culture to heal. Right. They cannot get the yeah. culture to affirm them. And it may, and, it, and the thing that I think is different, and I, and, I, and I think this is really kind of gets at part of this cultural conflict we've been talking about, is that there was once a time when conservatives didn't care what Hollywood thought. They didn't care what the dominant media thought. There's a great story I, I heard when I first went to work in the Senate where the New York Times criticized Jesse Helms and someone said, you know, Senator, we're gonna, I'm going to write a response. And Helms said, son, you go ahead and write your response. I think that's a fine thing to do. He said, but I have to tell you something. I don't read the New York Times and nobody I know reads the New York Times. And, that, and there was a more kind of muscular or assured conservatism because guys like Jesse Helms didn't give a shit what was in the New York Times. Well, they and, wore the badge of honor that the New York Times is slagging them off. Yeah, or, you know, insofar as they cared, that that's right. And now the New York Times, you know, criticizes a conservative and they all clutch their pearls and they faint and they pee themselves. And I, I think it's interesting that they, even though they gained all the power, their anger is magnified because they have now learned that gaining political power does not produce the respect from the culture that they so clearly crave. Yeah. For all their no, talk about how much. Sorry, I'm going to cut in here. I've got a question, Tom. Yeah. You're a, you're a, an expert on on the nuclear threat. 
have we spent um, the Americans, the British, spent too much money on the wrong insurance policy, i.e., a um, lot of money on nukes, and we haven't we've ignored the threat from an epi- from a pandemic. We've been wasting our money. I, I I have no doubt about that. I mean, I've been arguing for years, and I was a you know Reaganite pro nuclear you know build SDI if it scares the Russians kind of guy for years. Um, but when the Cold War ended, it ended, and at that point, we had a lot of room to say it's time to end our dependence here on kooky nuclear threats that we are never going to follow through on. And yet we just keep doing it and doing it because there's an entire, you know, the difference between the pandemic response and, and the nuclear deterrence uh, industry is pandemics don't have an entire infrastructure and establishment behind them to talk about pandemics. Whereas the nuclear establishment is gigantic it spreads across, you know, consulting firms and the Pentagon and state. And I mean, there's just a ton of people in think tanks and consultancies whose only job is to talk about how great nuclear weapons are. And But Tom, I- there is also, but Tom, there is also Vladimir Putin. And so I've always been a supporter of Britain's independent uh, nuclear deterrent because I've seen Putin's war crimes with my own eyes in Chechnya. I know what that man's like. The problem I, is, have we have we spent too much money on nukes and not enough on on preparing for a pandemic? I, I'm not a I'm not a you know, um, uh, you know, marching in the streets, no nukes guy. I mean, I I I am not an advocate of global zero. I'm an advocate of global low, and I don't trust Putin or anybody else uh, about this. You're not going to disinvent the technology, um, but I think. You know, to try to keep forcing every problem into the Cold War to kind of ram every square peg into that round Cold War hole. Um, you know, we basically have the same nuclear. I always refer to it as our current nuclear strategy is just a mini me of the strategy we had 35 years ago, and it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. But it, it's like a zombie policy that just marches on. I think in, in one of the uh, the benefits of globalization at a time when globalization is now seen to be the, the kind of catalyst for this plague is that, you know, I, I really don't see even a guy as awful as Putin pushing the button and incinerating Europe yeah. because to do that, frankly, is to incinerate his own net worth. You know, I, I always right. tell people exactly right. World War Three meme, by the way, has been supremely instrumentalized by the Kremlin and its surrogates and useful idiots and fellow travelers to basically uh, act as a deterrent against the the West doing anything at all belligerent or even self-defensive against Kremlin hostility, right? World War III. If, if the U.S. does anything uh, against Bashar al-Assad in Syria, it's World War III. And, I, you know, I always joke, no, I'd be worried about World War III when Lavrov pulls his kid out of fucking boarding school in the U.K., and you know, yeah. this commodity. I've been, that, I've been saying that for years that they're not going to nuke. Yeah, they're not going to nuke New York and London because they'd kill that's all their children. Yeah, and that's where they shop. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it, to that to that extent, yeah, I, I I do think that that the, the threat of WMD in the conventional way. I mean, I suppose we can consider coronavirus a weapon of mass destruction. Well, but to but go back to John's question about you know what we're spending the money on, this is the place that worries that does worry me about nu- about World War Three and nuclear weapons, is that 
we've decided that the answer to every possible problem in Europe is to do things like put small yield nuclear warheads on submarines. Uh, instead of doing the sensible thing, which is to build up your conventional forces so that the Russians just don't ever screw with you anywhere along the border of NATO. It's like, well, no, we can just save money on that. We'll just put low yield nukes. And when Putin threatens to use nukes, we'll pop open the doors on these subs. And that won't be provocative or scary or cause anybody to flip out and do something stupid. And so I, I always worry that our reliance on nukes is not that we will in key or we will intentionally start World War III. It's that we're putting up all these Rube Goldberg schemes that are advocated by people who really haven't thought through the experience of the Cold War and will end up in a crisis where nobody really kind of understands that what they're doing is, you know, unraveling the, the whole deterrent structure so that we end up going, you know, how the fuck did we end up dropping a tactical nuclear weapon on a bunch of guys in Russia and now we're at DEFCON 1 and we're all heading for the basement when, you know, nobody including Putin really wanted this. And it's not because, you know, we're going to be fighting World War III for some all all the marbles Cold War thing. It's because we were stupid and we outsourced our thinking about deterrence to a bunch of consulting firms. Mm. Now, I've got one final question. We've got five minutes to run. Um, and it's this, the the zombie apocalypse movie. We, we saw uh, these characters uh, in Michigan and elsewhere across the states, with their machine guns, and I thought, crikey, you know, the, the, you know, and and then uh, Trump t uh, tweeting about uh, let's liberate these states, and I thought, my God, is he gonna, is he trying to stimulate a second, um, a replay of the Civil War? And then I also saw, I was more struck by the the mass of uh, Russian soldiery. Uh, cheek by jowl to prepare for the um, anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the victory against Nazi Germany. And I wondered whether the zombie apocalypse movie reality show will actually be worse in Russia than it'll be in the States. What do you think? Um, first, I think uh, we can't read too much into the fact that what's happening in Michigan and Ohio and and Washington are incredibly ignorant, but vocal minorities. Um, you know, this constant fear, it's kind of like Michael talking about, Oh, if you opposed Assad, it's world war three. Uh, the same thing here. If you somehow say anything about these people, it's the second American civil war. Um, first of all, most of these people, you know, um, this is the, the, they are, uh, the result of this kind of p political entrepreneurship that Trump practices and, and part of it's a blowfish kind of problem. They're made to look bigger and more threatening than they really are. You know, all, all these people memeing from their mom's basement about, you know, world war two would have to clean the Cheeto dust off their fingers and, um, you know, turn off the, the games and the porn to actually organize something. And I, I I'm just less worried about that. Uh, because I think, again, you know, they're, they are, when you look at the actual polls, they are a, dis, a distinct, if dangerous, minority. In Russia, um, I think one of the really interesting things that has screwed up the narrative is that all of these kind of Russophile, um, um, you know, pro-Trump, pro-chaos protesters who think of Putin as a really tough guy are now left hanging because Putin has canceled the Victory Day Parade, which is unthinkable in Russia. 
you know, the idea of canceling the May Day parade is like, you know, they didn't, they don't, they don't cancel those while the Nazis are at the gates. Uh, yes. and suddenly like, Oh, so I'm sorry, Dr. Fauci and the deep state are what running the Kremlin now. Hey, maybe it's actually a real pandemic. And this is a real issue. I, I think Russians are actually used to much more than people in the West. They are used to um, group privation, um, yeah. having to struggle together, having to do things they don't like, uh, listening to the authorities about some of this stuff. I, I, I don't see the big, you know, zombie World War Three movie um, happening in Russia. I think the, the danger for Putin is that because he is like all authoritarians, his instinct is to lie immediately um, that he could end up in political danger the same way that Bojo and Trump and everybody else is, and she are all ending up in political danger because their own citizens are saying, listen, we're here, we'll work with you, but you've got to stop lying to us. And, and I think that's actually the bigger danger inside of Russia instead of some kind of, you know, the Russian army versus the COVID infected hordes or I just don't see that happening. Yeah. Uh, Mike, as always, I'm be wrong, but, you know. Yeah. Mike, last thought. Um, well, there's also a scenario in Russia, which I think fortunately does not apply here, where, um, you know, Putin is actually the more... Uh, preferable alternative to what might come next. I mean, I know U.S. intelligence always bangs on about, you know, a, a Zhirinovsky type figure, an ultra-nationalist taking over. Um, and I think in, in the midst of a pandemic where the state is lying to its people and morgues are filling up with dead bodies and, you know, grandma is on the slab and we're not allowed to talk about it for fear that the FSB is going to knock on the door and tell us to shut up. Um, you know, if there is a real national crisis, uh, my concern is who, who would follow a guy like Putin? I mean, even Setchin to some degree, actually not to some degree, to a large degree, scares the shit out of me more than, than even Putin does. Um, let me me suggest to you a comforting, but also scary alternative that I think will happen potentially in, um, cause you know, I, you know me, I'm I'm always Dr. Buzzkill and no good thing comes without a bad thing. Um, my concern about how all this plays out for democracy and, and even for governing in places like Russia is not that you get some wild-eyed populist who, you know, leads everybody out of their isolation. I, I actually think the likely outcome of all of this is the growth of something of a trend that is already in progress. And that is that the follow on to Putin or to anybody else is going to be a uh, less democratic, but more technocratic um, solution that um, you're going to get people who are going to say, I'm not here to tell you you're wrong. I'm just here to tell you that I'm going to fix things and don't ask me how. Mm. And I think I think for a lot of people, that kind of normalcy um, will be, uh, you know, a deal that they're willing to make. And that worries me. Uh, if you guys have ever seen the movie, and I, I use this in my classes all the time. If you've ever seen the movie Three Days of the Condor, I always worry about yeah, the, yeah. Ending, the ending of that movie where the rogue CIA guy says when, you know, when he's challenged, right? And so, well, you, you know, people the people aren't stupid, you know, ask them, um, go to the people, find out what they want. And he shakes his head and he says, look, 
he said, when people's cars won't start and they're cold and people that have never known hungry or hungry, he shakes his head and he says, they're not going to want us to ask them. They're just going to want us to get it for them. Right. And that's, that's the future. I fear that future much more than, you know, populist riots and second civil war and Confederate flag and all that shit. That's like the, the Burnham managerial revolution, but for the 21st century, right? A bunch of- And, and much more nefarious than the manager revolution. Like Victor Orban meets Mike Bloomberg on a global scale. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> well, Christ. and without Orban's rhetoric, without yeah. the flag of, you know, the crazy, you know, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-whatever it is, of just saying, look, um, you people out there in society are too stupid and you're too contradictory and- I understand what you want, but I'm not going to keep asking you anymore. I'm just going to get stuff for you. And I'm going to kind of, fit. I mean, it's almost like a, a Brezhnevian solution, right? Yeah. Of, so you know. Is, anyway, hey, Tom, we've, um, we're um, um, an hour and five, so we need to uh, close this down. But the idea that, um, bring back Brezhnev, uh, we get it. It's a cheery note. Your <laughs> book is called The Trap of Expertise. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and from, uh, Oxford uh, and University I, Press. I, for one, uh, will um, will buy it immediately after this. Uh, Tom Nichols, thank you very much. This is the last call. It's a conversation with two boozy hacks, Mike Weiss and me, John Sweeney. Our guests um, star, frankly, because you've been very funny and very very informative. Tom Nichols, thank you, and keep on listening. Cheers and goodbye. <laughs>